You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Crash Course a podcast about business, political, and social disruption, and what we can learn from it. I'm Tim O'Brien. Today's crash course, Britain versus Brexit. I'm old enough to remember that when British voters decided back in June 2016 to end their 43-year membership in the European Union, it seemed the most surreal political and economic event imaginable. Brexit, Britain exiting the EU, remains a watershed moment. The European Union was a statement of purpose as much as a trade relationship. It symbolized European countries putting centuries of hostility and two world wars behind them in the interest of economic cooperation. It represented European countries recognizing they had a more muscular global trade profile competing together rather than separately against powerhouses like the US. Brexit turned that on its head. It revealed the Tory party as captive to its far-right constituency and put issues like immigration, regulation, globalization, and the identities of both Europe and the UK up for grabs. Joining Crash Course to help make sense of this is Bloomberg Opinion columnist Adrian Woldridge. Adrian had a storied career at The Economist before joining our team, and he's an erudite, contrarian, and delightful observer of political economy and England. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you for that. So can we talk a little bit about Englishness, for lack of a better word? What is it about that little island that has had such a big stamp on history and has introduced so much to the world that it came to this moment that it felt its identity was so distinct and so possibly threatened by, you know, the European experiment that it decided to just turn its back on the continent? Well, you use the word Englishness, which is a very interesting word in itself, because we can't decide whether we're British or English. And in many ways, (laughs) what Brexit was about was about English nationalism, which had been a very submerged force for a long time, but became very, very powerful with the Brexit vote. In the early part of the 20th century, people used the term English to mean Britain, and nobody seemed to mind people doing that. So one of the greatest essays on Britain, actually, is England, My England by George Orwell, which came out in 1941. And the Scots read it with as much pleasure as the English did. But I think Englishness became rather separate from Britishness much more recently, partly in reaction to the rise of Scottish nationalism. Well, so wait, wait, wait. So so just define the two for our American-ish audience. Well, England is England and Britain is England plus Northern Ireland and Scotland uh, and Wales. And then the UK is the whole ball of wax. Absolutely. 
And in the Brexit vote, the Northern Irish actually voted to stay in the European Union. The Scottish voted by a large majority to stay in the European Union. This was really driven, it was an English thing. It was driven by the English. Now, yeah. the English are overwhelmingly important in this union because we English are 84% of the population. But it was a manifestation of English nationalism, which hadn't really existed in people's minds because they couldn't distinguish between Britain and England, but became a very, very powerful and potent force. And I remember when I went to live in the United States, which I did in 1997, I never saw an English flag, which is the, the cross of St. George. When I came back 13 years later, they were all over the place. So there's been an upsurge in English nationalism as opposed to Scottish nationalism or Britishness, which has driven a lot of this. Caused by what, Adrian? Of course, partly by the Scottish independence movement. So you begin to think of yourself as English because of the Scottish wanting their own independence and driven, you know, to a very significant extent, a sense of post-imperial nostalgia, the sense that England was being denigrated, England was being ground down into being part of this supranational unit called the European Union, and that we were proud of our identity. See, one of the fundamental things about the European Union is it was based on a sense of shame and never wanting to do this again, primarily, of course, in Germany, but also in France, which had collaboration on a large scale during the Second World War, and Italy, which was, you know, a fascist power. And it was built to say, never again, nationalism is a bad thing, nationalism is awful, we must get beyond it and create something else. Now, of course, England was on the other side in the war, and English nationalism, or British nationalism, was, you know, the thing that saved us from Hitler. So we always had... That was a, positive, positive nationalism at that point. Absolutely, a totally positive nationalism. And I think in Europe, there's been this constant drumbeat of talk about the evils of nationalism and getting beyond nationalism. And that was always very confusing to the British because we never wanted to do that. That wasn't part of our deal in going to Europe. We wanted a Europe of countries, not a unified state. And I guess when we can get into this later, certainly not a state where the EU was telling Britain how to regulate itself, which was yeah. how some of that was taken. Yes. But we'll get into more of that later. The other thing I want to touch on in this notion of Englishness is it flared before. I, I remember during the Falkland War, you know, to great effect, Thatcher used the Falklands as a nationalist moment. It was present in the early 2000s. There's the geography of the fact that the Channel divides England from the continent. There's always been this idea that England fortunately hasn't been pulled into the miseries that the continent has experienced. But what made it come to a head in such a dramatic way in 2016? And, and we can segue into David Cameron in that context. Sure. And what really brought it to a head was the sense that Europe was driving ever more rapidly towards integration, not just being a Europe of separate countries that cooperated, but being a single country with a single monetary union celebrated by the European Union and rejected by Britain. We didn't join the European Union by the admission of a number of poorer countries into Europe. So Europe was both deepening and expanding at the same time. And by Europe's insistence that an essential part of European identity was free movement of people. Now, it's slightly more complicated than that because Europe did provide a break and said, we'll have free movement of people, but there'll be five years in which to adjust to that policy. And Tony Blair neglected that break, or rejected, I should say, that break, on the grounds that Britain was going through a significant boom at the time, and Blair thought that we needed 
lots of labor. So he thought, you know, free movement of labor, lots of Romanians coming into the country, lots of Poles coming into the country is a great thing. So we had a big flood of people coming into the country, courtesy of our agreement. Also people who were willing to do work that a lot of the English themselves didn't want to do. Absolutely, and willing to do it at a lower price than the English perhaps wanted to do it as well. So that created much more friction than the ruling elite imagined, and much more sense that we were being undercut by foreign labor, integrated into a union based on the free movement of people, which meant that we couldn't control our own borders. So all of these things were sort of bubbling away under the surface. At the same time, Europe was moving on various technical issues to you know, close the deal on integration. And the noise from the right of the party, from the Brexit right of the party, became louder and louder and louder. The noise from the UKIP party became louder and louder and louder. And eventually David Cameron made what I consider to be a mistake, but he made the decision to put it to a referendum. And the referendum went in a way he didn't think it would. Absolutely. And one reason that he chose the referendum was that we'd also had a referendum on Scottish independence. And Cameron won that referendum better together. So he thought, well, I won one, why shouldn't I win another? And also, I think the London dwelling elite, of which I'm very much a member, unfortunately, I think, believed that you couldn't possibly get a Brexit victory, that allowing this vote would quiet the issue down. People would stop banging on about Brexit, as David Cameron put it, and we got this extraordinary result, which was an incredible shock certainly to me. Yeah, you know, it's a famous signature moment, but I, I don't think I will ever be able to get over that moment when Cameron stood in front of 10 Downing Street and announced that he was going to dissolve his own government because of the vote, and then turned around to walk back in and he started sort of humming to himself, la 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 la, as he walked away from the lectern. But it smacked to me a little bit of sort of Tory dalliance with huge sober issues that had gone haywire on them. And you could sort of merrily walk away from it because it wasn't going to directly affect you. I want to tell you a little anecdote from about, I guess, a year ago or maybe two years ago. My wife and my eldest son and I went out to Oxford to do a, a tour there. And we were being guided around the campus by a, a nice young Oxford student who, in the middle of it, began talking about Boris Johnson's antics at the Bullingdon Club and how when he was an undergrad at Oxford, he and other members of the club, Cameron was, I think, in the club at the same time, one of their rites of passage was to go to a local restaurant, trash the restaurant within an inch of its life, and then their parents would pay the restaurant owner for the damage. And that that was sort of a, an initiation rite for the Bullington Club. And I sort of think of Brexit in similar fashion, that David Cameron and Boris Johnson went about sort of breaking this thing and leaving it for someone else to fix. And it's much more complex than having your parents come in and pay the bill, obviously. But it sort of comes from the same place to me in terms of a, it's obviously not noblesse oblige. I don't know what the French word would be, but it's about, you know, noblesse damage or whatever the word for destruction might be. What does this say about the Tories and responsibility? Well, there are two things here. One is that there was an incredible pressure from the right of the Conservative Party, which had been building for years and years and years to take Britain out of the European Union, or at least to renegotiate our relationship with the European Union. And, you know, we'd had massive battles in the late 1990s over the Maastricht Treaty, which was laying the foundations for the common currency and for a much more integrated 
single market. So that was a sort of an ongoing political problem, a problem of party management for the Tory party. And that was also made much more serious as a problem of party management by the creation of UKIP, which was pulling more and more votes from the Tory voters and was endangering Tory majorities. So MPs respond to that sort of incentive, obviously. But I think there was a sort of arrogance, lack of seriousness. David Cameron was always sort of an essay crisis prime minister, or he liked to chillax as he used it. He didn't quite <laughs> like to seem at least too serious. He liked to roll the dice. He rolled the dice over Scottish independence and it worked. So he did it again, foolishly. And it's partly the sort of epistemic closure, as it were, that if you live in the south of England, to conclude that Brexit was a far out possibility seems quite reasonable. Everybody you meet is pro-staying. So it was a sense in which the political class, including the Tory political class, was cut off from the reality in the country. Now, with Boris Johnson, I think it's a much more cynical thing that he calculated that the only way that he could become prime minister was to become the champion of the Brexit voting classes of the sort of the populist wing of the Tory party. And he did that quite, quite cynically. So he was willing to smash up this very delicate relationship with Europe in order to win the prime ministership. So cynicism on his part and naivety or insouciance on the part of Cameron and a certain degree of fanaticism on the part of the Brexiteer wing of the Conservative Party. There were people in the Conservative Party who'd been banging on about Brexit, you know, for 20 or 30 years, Bill Cash being the sort of the leader of that group of people who could not think about anything but Brexit for decades and decades and decades. But it's meant beyond Cameron and beyond Boris, it is meant inaction and uncertainty for the party as a whole. You've now had five prime ministers cycle through Downing Street's black door including Boris, and the same Boris who in 2018, I think, made the infamous proclamation, screw business. He said something more blue than that, but I'm yes. cleaning it up for our <laughs> podcast. Where is the Tory identity amid all of this? Well, the Tory identity is an incredible mess at the moment, because what Brexit did was to unmoor the Conservative Party from certain very fundamental conservative traditions and values. One tradition of value is quite clearly support for business, which you've seen for a very long time. And Boris's rather blue comment was clearly a reaction against that. But other things that are quintessential to Toryism are respect for tradition, respect for institutions, respect for doing things on a piecemeal, non-ideological basis, and a fear, a hostility to taking a leap in the dark. And Brexit was a leap in the dark of the most extraordinary sort. And Brexit also led the Tory party, to trash a great many traditions. So you have the Daily Mail as a Brexit supporter, supporting newspaper, basically calling judges, Supreme Court judges, traitors. You had leading Brexit people proroguing parliament or trying to push things through. So you, what you set up was a clash between the will of the people, as expressed through the referendum, and the institutions of the country. And the Tories, I would have thought, would be on the side of the institutions rather than this sort of Rousseauian idea of the rule of the will of the people. But because of Brexit and the referendum, they found themselves siding with the will of the people. So they became a populist party. Would Rishi Sunak exist without Brexit? Could he have come to Downing Street without Brexit having created the conditions for his arrival? Well, it's a very interesting question, actually. I think Rishi Sunak is one of life's winners. You know, he's a quintessentially successful Tory 
And he combines two characteristics which are very, very interesting. One is that he's a very new figure in that his parents were immigrants who came to this country and he came from a sort of middle-class background whereby he wouldn't really naturally go to Winchester public school from a striving, upwardly mobile background. So in that sense, you know, he's very different from Cameron. He belongs to a different England. But in another sense, he is quite quintessentially Tory. He's a Thatcherite, he's a social conservative, albeit a Hindu rather than a Christian, and he's a very committed conservative. Fiscal conservative. conservative, absolutely. So I think he would have risen to the top of the Conservative Party in whatever circumstances, you know, because what's not to like about a highly talented, highly capable person who also has immigrant background? It sort of expresses the capacity of the Conservative Party to absorb, to change, whilst also remaining the same. Well, and there's an irony, given that part of Brexit involved racism, or at least bigotry toward migrant labor, and that you've now ended up with the first prime minister of color. Absolutely. Well, it's an extremely complicated question on the point of view of ethnicity, I should say, because what really stimulated a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment, or at least hesitation about free movement of people, was actually white people from Poland coming over in very large numbers. Right. You know, the classic notion was the Polish plumber. And there was a significant support for Brexit amongst people from the British Commonwealth, from, let's say, India, partly because they thought they were being discriminated against by EU rules, which made it easier for people, let's say, from Europe to come to settle in Britain than people from India. So bringing your parents over would be more difficult if you're an Indian than bringing the parents of a Polish plumber who's just arrived much more recently, a few years ago. So there was a significant ethnic minority element in the Brexit vote. And there was a particular cohort within the Conservative Party of people who were members of ethnic minorities, but were also very, very vigorously supportive of Brexit for a complicated set of reasons. One of whom was Rishi Sunak, who was always, despite being a technocrat, was a Brexiteer from the very beginning, much more of a solid, long history of support for Brexit than Boris Johnson had. So it's a complicated story. And a complicated story about there is a certain element within the European Union that sees Europe as a sort of bastion of European, Christian, Greco-Roman civilization. And an element and statism. Yeah, and, and, statism. and statism, absolutely. And an element within the Conservative Party that sees Brexit as the Commonwealth intensified. So Labour now in you know, when polls has these double digit polling advantages over the Tories. As we know, polls are often deeply flawed and we never really know till votes happen. What does Labour do in a moment like this if it wants to reposition itself to govern for more than one election cycle? I think the thing that Labour does, first of all, is wait while your opponent hangs himself and not make too much noise. <laughs> because the Tory party is in you know, massive internal chaos. We've had the Boris Johnson thing, then we have Rishi slightly suffering from trying to impose discipline on a fractious party, but finding that increasingly difficult because of you know, very sticky levels of inflation and interest rates rising. So a very rebellious Conservative party. So what you do... And I think what Keir Starmer has done extremely well is rule your party with an iron fist. He's doing that very well. Look sensible. He's doing that very well. But also, you need to bear in mind that Brexit did reveal something very, very important. And that was that large numbers of people in this country, particularly in the North, particularly in the working class, feel alienated from the political establishment. And you have to reach out to those people and make it look as though you care about them. And in fact, 
actually do care about them. So for all the many, many failures of Brexit, Brexit did put the mainly white northern working class right at the centre of British politics. British politics under Tony Blair and David Cameron was really a battle for the middle classes and affluent and upwardly mobile people. It's become since Brexit a battle for the working classes and people who feel as though their lives are stuck. Sometimes they're called the sort of the just about managing people. And next election will be about that. So Starmer, you look at those people, you also reposition yourself as a pro-business party. You have to remember that in 2019, you know, the Labour, the Labour Party was led by a Marxist who really, really hated business. And that was something which in a capitalist economy is not really a way to prosperity. So Keir Starmer is now making it very clear that he's a pro-business party. So he moved to the centre that was occupied so well by Blair, but also focus on the just about managing, look at the northern working classes and try and appeal to those as well. So you get a strange combination of Starmer being very pro-business, emphasising the incredible mess that the Tories have made or the incredible volatility of politics in the last few years. But also, I think you'll probably see him waving the, the Union Jack, the flag, and talking a lot about cultural conservatism, I think. On that note, Adrian, I want to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors, and then we will come right back and continue our Brexit discussion. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm back with Adrian Wildridge, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist and savant who is educating me about the ins and outs of Brexit and what it means for Britain's economy and character and future. Adrian, let's discuss the particulars of Brexit a little bit without getting overly wonky, but let's just look at what it was meant to achieve and what it's actually accomplished thus far. You know, maybe an easy way in is has been obviously its weaknesses. It hasn't really resulted in some of the renewed trade relationships that it envisioned. But you tell me what you think Brexit's strengths and weaknesses have been thus far. One of the big problems with Brexit was that the pro-Brexit people were never very clear about what it was meant to achieve, or to put it more accurately, that different factions within the pro-Brexit movement wanted very, very different things from it. There was a globalist faction, radical free market faction within the Brexit movement that said what they wanted to do was to get out of the European Union because the European Union was a statist 
sort of anti-capitalist almost project. They wanted to burst free of that and turn Britain into a sort of beacon of free market and, you know, compete globally, focus on the whole world market and make sure that you liberated business, reduced regulations in ways that you couldn't do while you were in the European Union and outcompete the European Union on the global stage. So that was the free market wing of the Brexit case. But then there were a lot of other people who wanted exactly the opposite. They wanted protection from an increasingly, what they saw as an increasingly hostile, difficult, frightening world. They were like hobbits who wanted to burrow in their hobbit holes and not deal with the rest of the world. So they wanted tighter control in immigration. Many of them wanted a much more top-down style of capitalism, state companies. And so these people marched together, but behind completely different visions of what Brexit was about. And what you've had is these two visions repeatedly clashing with each other and a resulting mess. And Boris Johnson, of course, given his nature, tried to have it both ways, tried to you know, have his cake and eat it by talking about global Brexit, becoming a much more globally oriented country, whilst at the same time talking about increasing public spending and building up certain barriers to free competition at home. So these two things have never been resolved. And you've had policy confusions because of that. But also, it's been very, very, very difficult to test whether Brexit is being successful or whether it's failing, because you don't know what it's trying to do. Well, wasn't I mean, the idea at its core was you would unshackle the British economy from rules and regulations that these statists Europeans were trying to impose. Yes. And it would cause entrepreneurial growth and new investment. And you could find trade relations elsewhere, specifically with the United States, that somehow this huge bowl of trade yes. that was England's relationship with the EU would get filled by a deeper relationship with the US. And that hasn't happened. Absolutely. I mean, one of the many problems with the Brexit promise was that the Brexiteers thought that Brexit would be quite easy. And they thought that negotiating a free trade deal with the United States would be quite easy. And to believe that, you have to know very, very little about trade deals with the United States, because it's one of the most difficult things you can possibly do, negotiate a free trade deal with you know, a very large and law-obsessed power across the Atlantic. But what's gone wrong with all of this, apart from the fact that we didn't know what we were doing in the first place, was many things. But we have seen the economy take a big hit as a result of that. Now, there are very many different calculations as to how big that hit is. I think the Bloomberg estimate is about 4% of GDP or 100 billion pounds in cost. Of what is the world's sixth largest economy. What the economy would be had we not gone in for Brexit. Now, it's obviously very difficult to calculate because we've had the pandemic, which had a huge impact on economies all around the world. But you can see various things going on, you know, such as the fact that Britain has the lowest rate of growth in the G7, I think at the moment it's lagging behind those countries, such as the fact that you can see trade with European countries going down, but not being compensated for by, let's say, a US trade deal. And you can also, if you talk to business people who deal, you know, who are in the business of trade, they will complain all the time about an extraordinary amount of bureaucracy that didn't exist before and about delays at Dover and at various other ports because everything has to be checked, which didn't have to be checked before. But it's actually gotten harder to do business than easier. Much harder to do business. I don't think it's got easier anywhere, but it's got very much harder with the European Union, which is, of course, a massive, massive market. Now, pro-Brexit people would say, well, we've got these 70-odd trade deals 
which have been negotiated with an incredible speed with all sorts of countries all around the world. But most of these trade deals are overwhelmingly just photocopied versions of the EU's pre-existing trade deals. We've just put them in our own name rather than in the name of the EU. And the one big bowl of cherries, which we were constantly offered by the Brexit people, was the trade deal with the United States. That's not happened and will take a great deal of time. But the other thing I think it's very important to emphasise is the opportunity costs of Brexit. You know, we spent the last seven years at war with ourselves or with each other about Brexit, and we devoted an enormous amount of political and intellectual energy to this fight. And that created a very unstable politics. So you had this succession of prime ministers, three prime ministers in one year, for example. When you change prime ministers, you change all the rest of the lower people. You know, they get moved around. The new prime minister has to bring in their favourites. So, you, you know, you had a revolving door in every single department and you had not enough intellectual bandwidth left over to deal with incredibly pressing problems such as the obesity epidemic, which is worse in Britain than any other European country, and we're second really only to the United States. The housing market, the housing market's getting rocked by the, you know, the worst cost of living crisis in a generation. And inflation, which the inflation rate's the highest in Europe, 8.7% right now. Yeah, although those are relatively recent, and they may have a lot to do with the way that the COVID epidemic has played out in Britain. But the most important one was productivity. Britain has had a dismal productivity record all the way through this century. And, you know, we should have been focusing above all on the productivity problem. And there's been virtually no focus on that. So all of this stuff that wasn't done because we were tearing each other apart over Brexit. Well, as you can see, I think it's been a disaster for Britain. But I should add as a caveat to the fact that it's been a disaster for Britain, that it wasn't as though there weren't problems with the European Union. It wasn't as though the European Union couldn't have been more accommodating to Britain's worries about the European Union and the way that it operated, not least over the migration point, because Europe decided to both deepen and broaden at the same time, increasing or reinforcing the rights that European citizens had, whilst at the same time taking in very large numbers of poorer countries or people from poorer countries. And the people who bore the brunt of that immigration surge, which came after Eastern European countries were brought into Europe, was Britain, partly because of the English language and partly because of a very liberal labour market. And opportunities and need. You know, there were jobs there. Many more opportunities. If you want a job in Germany, you have to speak German, you have to have all sorts of vocational qualifications, you have to go through a big rigmarole, which you don't in Britain. Britain's much closer to the United States. So we did have a surge in immigration, which led to a lot of unease. I remember going to, during the endless Brexit debate, going to a constituency in Birmingham, a constituency of an MP called Khalid Mahmoud, and he was sitting in the room and we were talking about Brexit and the audience was overwhelmingly consisted of people from Bangladesh and the Indian subcontinent, and they were overwhelmingly pro-Brexit and hostile to what they saw as people coming from Eastern Europe and taking their jobs. So it was a shock to the system. Yeah, yeah, but, but you know, this dynamic exists in the United States as sure. well, with Mexican and Central American laborers coming over the southern border of the United States for jobs. Those are jobs that employers in the southern states need them for. And rather than work this out in a humane and rational way, it becomes sensationalized as a race invasion. And I think the issue all of us in the world we're in right now is how do you 
accommodate people's understandable fears of outsiders, quote unquote, while not letting that devolve into outright racism or protectionism or a simple slamming of a border being shut. And sure. I think that Brexit was this door being brought down rather than a search for a more sophisticated solution. Well, but there is an important distinction between Britain and the United States. The United States has control over its borders. It may not be able to exercise that control as well as it would like, but it has legal control over its borders. The point about the European Union is that you do not have control over your borders. If you're a member of the European Union, other countries have a right, citizens of other countries have a right to move to your country. And that was seen as a step too far. So the great slogan of Brexit, take back control, you know, that we should be able to control our borders was a very powerful one. And it is the case that I can't think of any example of nation states in history willingly saying that they're giving up control of who lives within their borders. That's a big reduction of the notion of sovereignty. Now, the British were the people who felt the impact of free movement first because of the attractiveness of the country. But still, this very notion of free movement, which is central to the way that the European Union thinks about itself, I think is one that will create a lot of friction. So I do think that Brexit was a disaster and we're living through the disaster. But I wish that we'd been able to negotiate a relationship with the EU, which saw some flexibility on the EU's part to understand that free movement of people, legal free movement of people, is different from free movement of goods or free movement of currency. Workers in Britain have also been on strike in large waves for the first sort of big strikes, the likes of which we haven't really seen since maybe the 1980s. Nurses and teachers are on strike and have been marching in the UK. And, and one of the arguments, primarily, I think, Nigel Farage's argument was that there would be a NHS dividend from Brexit. If you left Brexit, the economy would hum along so well and there would be such productivity that the tax base would expand enough that you could give a big lump sum payment to the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK, and bail out a system that's creaking. And that hasn't happened either. And workers are striking. How does that get resolved? Well, sure. I mean, one of the arguments was that all the money that was being sent off to Europe, because we were a net contributor to Europe, could be kept in our own hands and then spent on the NHS. And that was a big part of the appeal of the idea. We won't give all those European bureaucrats this money. We'll spend it on the NHS. And in fact, since Brexit, the NHS has got worse. The queues have got longer. Some of that is Brexit related in the sense that it's harder to bring in workers from Europe, although we've compensated for that to some extent by bringing in workers from outside Europe. But the biggest problem with the NHS is one of productivity. So it's this opportunity cost of not focusing on Britain's productivity problem that is really driving it all, because you can't have a good, well-functioning welfare state if you don't have you know, an economy that's producing the dividends to pay for that. The other thing with strikes, it's essentially a result of a pulse of inflation which has gone through the world as a result of COVID, really. Britain has been harder hit. It may have been marginally affected by Brexit. I don't think it's principally a Brexit fault. But when you have inflation going through, public sector workers have very little way of compensating for inflation. And you have a very inflexible wage system in the public sector. So what they do is they get paid, as it were, as collectively under national collective bargaining rights, and then they go on strike. 
And in general, we're moving towards a higher inflation, higher interest rate world. And I think that that will be a problem right across Europe and to some extent the United States, although you're doing better at bringing your inflation under control than, than we are. So I think Brexit, the effect was felt much more in terms of the lower trade, the complexity of doing business and the opportunity costs of dealing with productivity issues than it was in terms of this recent wave of strikes and inflation. Adrian, I'm gonna, we're going to stop again for a brief pause so we can hear from a sponsor, and then we will come right back to this interesting discussion. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm back with Adrian Woldridge, a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. We are looking at the collision between Britain and Brexit and the political and economic fallout that has attended that. You know, the British economy, Adrian, has lagged its G7 counterparts in post-COVID economic recovery. It has a smaller workforce than before the COVID lockdowns began. While the tax burden in the UK is the biggest since World War II, public services are perilously underfunded. And foreign direct investment in, in the UK has slowed down. France recently overtook Britain as a pet destination for foreign direct investment projects for the first time in 20 years. And all of these data points suggest to me that the UK is in economic peril. And I think one of the burdens that's been on Sunak as the first rational Tory to sit in Downing Street since Boris started his charade is how do you make the UK competitive again? And if they were looking to the United States as a trading partner to do that, the United States has gone in the other direction. The United States is embracing industrial policy in certain ways. So what does the UK do in a post-Brexit world where it's facing these existential economic challenges? Well, I think your list of the problems that Britain faces is a very good comprehensive list. And it's one that worries me very deeply. I think that I've not been so pessimistic about the state of Britain since the late 1970s. It's truly dismal at the moment. And it's dismal partly because in the late 1970s, we at least had a coherent set of policies which could come in and address those problems. Now we don't really seem to have a coherent set of policies. We don't know whether more Thatcherism is the right way forward or more dirigism is the right way forward. We have a policy paralysis or certainly a policy confusion going on at the moment. The most important thing to do and the thing that Rishi is most concerned about is bringing down inflation 
because it's inflation that's driving the wave of strikes, which is reducing the real living standards of people most directly and is causing a massive mortgage crunch. But the trouble is, we keep pushing and inflation keeps staying uncomfortably high, you know, and that's creating a great deal of panic. So unless they get inflation down, nothing else can really be done. There's the issue of the boats, which is creating a lot of disquiet. But above all... The boats meaning migrants trying to cross to seek asylum or residency in the UK. And that leads to you know two sets of problems. One is the boats sink and people die. And another is people come here and then you have a problem of housing them. And a lot of the places where they're housed are in seaside communities, which are already quite volatile and quite poor, which drove a lot of the Brexit anger, actually. And that is coming back. But the most worrying problem about Britain is this underlying low productivity. There's no quick fix to that. We should have been focusing on that for the last 20 years or more. And certainly for the last 10 years, we've been, particularly the Tory party, has been obsessed by Brexit. We have another potentially serious problem coming ahead, which is that the Labour Party wins the election, but only just, and is dependent, let's say, on Scottish nationalist votes or on Liberal Democrat votes. And then you not only continue with unstable government... And an inability to govern, to deliver policy. But also what the Scots nationalists will demand is another referendum, which will make even more instability. And what the Liberal Democrats will demand, I should think, will be big changes to the voting system. So again, whatever you think of the voting system, that's a big distraction from these fundamental questions. So what Britain really needs is a sensible party with a solid majority focused on fundamental underlying economic issues. So let's hope Starmer, who is, I think, a sensible man, gets a, a serious majority in the next election, or by some miracle, the Tories get a serious majority in the next election, because we've had a long, long period of distraction. And a Labour Party that understands how to take advantage in the most fulsome way of this moment, in terms of perhaps recreating its own identity and thinking differently about the role businesses play in a productive economy. Absolutely. We have to remember, and it's terrifying to do so, that in 2019, Britain faced a choice between the Tory party led by Boris Johnson and a Labour party led by Jeremy Corbyn, one of whom was a complete mountebank and sort of flashman character, and the other of whom was essentially a Marxist, whose reaction to the murder, to the poisoning of two Russians in Salisbury was to say, well, let's hand it over to the FSB because they've got the equipment to try and see whether this was a murder or not. I mean, it's extraordinary that we should have had those two people as the only choice. Whatever you know, we can say about the state of Britain now, at least we'll have a choice in the next election between two sensible party leaders. You know, the other elephant in the room is China. And back when Europe could squabble about the best way to organize its own economies, and the United States offered another model for how to organize an economy, collectively, plus Japan, those were the world leading economies. And over the last 30 years, China has now to great effect, become an economic powerhouse. And it's done that through a civil service married to an entrepreneurial class, married to unforgiving statism. And to compete with China, the US is using the power of the public purse and the federal government to try to jumpstart green initiatives to become stronger players in the EV market. This is not classic free market capitalism. This is public-private partnerships. And Sunak's being called on to compete as well and to find ways to get the government purse behind economic growth. 
you know, Brexit was sort of a referendum against England uniting with the rest of Europe to become a stronger economic player against China and the US. Does that have to be rethought now? Does that sort of philosophical dispensation have to be reconsidered given what China means in the world as an economic powerhouse and some of the things that are happening in the US right now? I think it should be rethought, but I don't think it can be rethought in the sense I don't think we can really in any time in the near future revisit Brexit. And what Brexit was, was not only mismanaged, but incredibly mistimed. Brexit took place at a time when the world was very visibly fragmenting into big regional blocks, you know, the China-centric bloc, the US-centric bloc, and the European bloc. And Britain decided to sort of go it alone, and the globalists amongst the Brexiteers decided to go for a global market at a time when the global market was being carved up. So Britain threatens to be ignored, I think, and to some extent. It threatens to be ignored by America, which has got big fish to fry in the form of its competition with China. It threatens to be ignored by the European Union, which is constantly in the business of trying to shore up its own sort of regime of regulations, which it will do with less and less thought about Britain. And it threatens to be looking for trade deals with, let's say, Mongolia. I mean, small economies there. So it was a very ill-timed action. Also, there's the bigger question of what we do about this change in the nature of capitalism, more national champions, more protectionism, more sort of liberal policies. And that's, again, very difficult for Britain. On the one hand, you have Sunak, who wants to keep going with Thatcherite policies broadly and wants to have a trading relationship with the United States as if the United States was what it was under Reagan rather than what it is now. So that's coming up against closed doors. But then you have the Labour Party looking at Bidenomics and saying, yeah, let's have some of that ourselves. So the, the Labour Party wants to create a national champion energy company. It wants to have a green transition. Semiconductors. Uh, all of that sort of stuff. And it wants to have a green transition in which up until the, only the other day, they were talking about spending £30 billion a year in green subsidies. Now they're thinking, oh my God, We've got a high interest rate environment. We can't possibly afford this. We've got a business community that's very nervous. And so they're scaling back these suggestions completely, pulling them right back. So one of the things that I think might well happen to Britain is it'll be caught in the headlights, as it were. America will go its way. China will go its way. Europe will go its way. And Britain will be paralyzed between all these various options and won't really know what its economic identity is in this very sort of dynamically changing world. Who would have thunk it? <laughs> Who would have thunk it? Indeed. Adrian, Crash Course is always about learning moments. What have you learned about Britain and Brexit that you didn't know before voters came out in favor of it in 2016? I've learned that the question of dignity is much more important as a political motive than I'd ever calculated. I believe that Britain wouldn't vote for Brexit. And I believed it wouldn't vote for Brexit because it was a half-baked idea that was likely to have deleterious consequences for the British economy. But large numbers of people voted for it, not because I think they thought it would be economically beneficial, but because their dignity was wounded by the sort of Blair Cameron regime which they'd seen before, which was socially very liberal, economically very liberal, and left large numbers of people behind. And the sort of calculus that Blair and Cameron had was that, well, some chunks of the country would be left behind, but you could always compensate for that with more welfare payments and more economic transfers, essentially. And what we learned was that people 
can get economic transfers, they can be getting along in a material sense, you know, tolerably well, but that if they don't have a sense of control of their lives, if they don't have any jobs, if they feel as though they're being marginalised by the broader culture, which in this country is incredibly London-based, they feel that their dignity is injured, and when they feel that their dignity is injured, they lash out against the system. On that happy note, Adrian, we've run out of time. Thanks thanks for getting together with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Adrian Wooldridge can be found online at Bloomberg Opinion, on the Bloomberg Terminal, and on Twitter, at A.D. Wooldridge. Here at Crash Course, we believe that collisions can be messy, impressive, challenging, surprising, and always instructive. In today's Crash Course, I learned that even if you're one of the most robust economies in the world, as England is, and even if you once oversaw the biggest empire in world history, bad judgment, biases, and recklessness can make all of that unwind almost in the blink of an eye, or at least in the blink of a Brexit. What did you learn? We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at the Bloomberg Opinion handle, at Opinion, or me, at Tim O'Brien, using the hashtag Bloomberg Crash Course. You can also subscribe to our show wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It helps more people find the show. This episode was produced by the indispensable Anna Mazarakis, Moses Andam, and me. Our supervising producer is Magnus Henriksen, and we had editing help from Sage Bauman, Katie Boyce, Jeff Grocott, Mike Nitza, and Christine Vanden Bylart. Blake Maples does our sound engineering, and our original theme song was composed by Luis Guerra. I'm Tim O'Brien. We'll be back next week with another Crash Course. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than a destination. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all. All of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a Stiefel Financial Advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.